Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, and welcome to Silmarillion Seminar 32. This episode is the second session in which we cover the Alcalabeth, but not the last. The overarching theme of this episode is the rise of Sauron and the fall of Numenor, including speculation on whether it was a mistake to give the Numenorians long life, and, speaking of life, what do three dead rulers have to say about the meaning of life? Then we consider if Tar Palantir was too little, too late, the sad tale of Tar Mariel, and how big of a jerk Alpharazon actually was. We also ask the question, who's the better bad guy, Morgoth or Sauron? So enjoy this episode, named in honor of Mike Thurway, Somewhere Beyond the Sea. Okay, good evening everyone, and welcome back to the Silmarillion Seminar. Tonight we begin week two uh, in our discussion of Akalabaith, uh, as of course we are getting closer and closer to the end of the Silmarillion. Um, it has, It is and has been my plan to discuss the Akalabaith in two weeks, um, though I am fully cognizant of a quite contrary plan on the part of everybody else in the seminar. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Uh, at the end of class last time we had gotten as far as the debate between the emissaries of Valinor and the kings of Numenor um, about immortality and why the humans didn't have any and uh, I want to so we're going to pick up today with the decline of Numenor the the more rapid decline of Numenor following this um, and uh, leading up to our Pharazon so um so f first, first thoughts about that. Thoughts about uh, the rise of Sauron, of the decline of Numenor, um, and what we see happening, and what is being emphasized uh, by Tolkien about sort of the uh, anything interesting that you noticed about uh, the things which are being identified as signs of the decline of Numenor or consequences of that decline. Um, what would you guys like to talk about first there? Yeah, Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, um, I was just thinking, um, in the very beginning, uh, it says that um, Morgoth uh, arose again. I was wondering if, if, do you think he was doing penance, or was he just, like, hiding? Well, that, or, Sauron, um, you, you know, mean, what was yes. going on with Sauron then? Yes, yes. Sauron, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about that at the very beginning of the next section, that is, of the Rings of Power in the Third Age. Um, and, uh, actually we, we might as well, uh, uh, since you've asked the question, we might as well just peek ahead because that's really where the answer is to this. We don't really learn much of the backstory. We learn, um, because of course in the story of the Numenorians, all that matters is the fact that he is rising again, um, over there. Um, now again, of course, doesn't mean that he once had dominion. Of course, we all will remember Sauron, uh, you know, being around as Morgoth's lieutenant, uh, most especially during the Baron and Luthien story, um, when he is first the guy who is leading the charge and pursuing Barahir and Baron, uh, and then uh, in the end ruling Finrod's old city, and ultimately, um, ultimately destroying. Uh, destroying Finrod in the memorable uh, music fight and everything. Now, um, so, 
but after that, we will also remember, of course, even more memorably, uh, that Luthien and Huan kick his butt and he goes flying off in the form of a vampire bat dripping blood from his throat and is never seen from again, so far as we can tell, in the first age. Um, now, just again, so peeking ahead to the very first page of, of the Rings of Power in the Third Age... Um, Second paragraph. When Thangorodrim was broken and Morgoth overthrown, Sauron put on his fair hue again, and did obeisance to Aonwe, the herald of Manwe, and abjured all his evil deeds. And some hold that this was not at first falsely done, but that Sauron in truth repented, if only out of fear, being dismayed by the fall of Morgoth and the great wrath of the lords of the West. But it was not within the power of Aonwe to pardon those of his own order, and he commanded Sauron to return to Amman, and there receive the judgment of Manwe. Then Sauron was ashamed, and he was unwilling to return in humiliation, and to receive from the Valar a sentence, it might be, of long servitude in proof, in proof of his good faith, for under Morgoth his power had been great. Therefore, when Aonwe departed, he hid himself in Middle-earth, and he fell back into evil, for the bonds that Morgoth had laid upon him were very strong. Um, so from this, we can see a couple things, I think. Um, that is, we can see this. there's this implication that he actually does repent, even if it's only briefly and then he relapses, um, but that there is some some kind of repentance or, or at least some shadow of repentance uh, in Sauron at the end of the First Age. And then he now has fallen back. So when we talk about Sauron rising again, uh, at this time, during the decline of Numenor, that's what we're talking about. From his kind of glory days in the First Age, uh, under Morgoth, and now having having been in hiding, and now sort of growing again. Um, so that's uh, that. That's clearly the scenario that is being given now. And of course, now he's he's working into a void, right? That there's. Now, not only no Morgoth, but the Valar have left too. And as we saw at the beginning last time, the Valar have seemed to seem to have left men over in Middle-earth, um, the ones who didn't get invited to Numenor, um, pretty much to themselves. And so Sauron has begun to fill uh, to fill that void and set himself up as you know the little mini Morgoth over there. So that's the that's the situation. Um, when he is when he is arising and the situation in which he forges the ring of power that's that has all that is also happening here in the second age um while Numenor is while the story of Numenor is going on across the sea now of course the Akalabeth doesn't talk all that much about the rings of power um the one thing that it does say is that Sauron does seduce three Numenorians with uh with the nine rings, so that three of the Nazgul are former Numenorians, but uh, that's pretty much all that we are. Um, that's pretty much all that we're told about it. Um, uh, yeah, Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say the. Do you remember um, the just kind of the stylistic point um, of the, of the on my edition is page two seventy eight where it says. Um, then he sent forth heralds and commanded Sauron to come before him and swear him fealty. And Sauron came, yes. you know, and it kind of reminds me of, uh, and it stank, or you know, those kind of stylistic moments. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second thing I wanted to say is that um, he starts to spread um, basically uh, just false mythologies, a false mythos that um, out of the world was made, out of darkness was the world, the world was made, and and there's a very dramatic point where the Alpharazon says. 
who is this Lord of Darkness? Yeah. You know, it seems like that would be a very dramatic turning point. And I just wanted to, this is this very subtle, dramatic, um, nuanced, you know, it's not all written. It's just like if you can envision this thing as a, I don't know, on that scale, it just seems very, very interesting. And it's interesting that he calls also Melkor the Lord of all, giver of freedom. Mm-hmm. And shall make you stronger, you know. So yes. if you could comment on those things. Uh, I would love to. You're skipping around pretty wildly here, Brandon, I gotta say. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I, I want... <laughs> That's my style, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, I have a lot of things that I want to say about that stuff. But I want to I hang on to that for a second, because that, of course, comes at the culmination of the corruption of Numenor. Um, and I want to first build up to that. Um, that is, I don't want to leave behind... Uh, these first signs, because I think it's important to see the place that Numenor is when Sauron comes over, because uh, it's easy to say, you know, and 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 sometimes uh, sometimes I've heard people say, you know, kind of flippantly, or not exactly flippantly, but anyway, I've heard I've heard people say, you know, Sauron corrupts Numenor, or like Sauron destroyed Numenor. Sort of, but not. That's that's an oversimplification. And so, what I first want to do is look at where um, at where Numenor was before Sauron's intervention, uh, and then see what's how Sauron interacts with them and what it is exactly he does. And that that both of those moments, the end Sauron came moment, and the um, and the that conversation with our Farazan are, are really crucial, I think. Um, but uh, um, but anyway, I want to I want to I want to do some earlier stuff first. Joe, did you want to talk about earlier stuff? <clears throat> yeah, uh, this is going back to where uh, it mentions the Numenorians. They, they used to give gifts to the people, uh, the men in Middle Earth. They would um, go and help them, and then it mentions that. Uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce the names, but um, <laughs> uh, on 265, last paragraph, mentions uh, the king and his son. Um, they were both very proud, eager for wealth, so they the men of the earth under tribute, taking now rather than giving. And uh, it's just interesting because, um, you know, mm-hmm. where they're living is the land of gift anyway. And they were, it seems like they were blessed and continue to prosper. And even though they weren't at the height of their glory here yet, but in my opinion, they were better off uh, as they were giving. I mean, they were better off as they were giving. And then I'm um, you see a turn here as they start taking instead because they're trying to hold on and control things. And yeah, no, and take that. See something really terrible. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Joe, I think that that's a that's that's a fantastic point to remind us about. You know, the fact that this place is called the land of gift, um, because of course there are three stages. Sometimes, again, we might be quick to kind of skip over this. That is, we see them coming as benefactors and gift givers at the beginning, and then we will see them as slavers. Uh, and tyrants at the end, but there is this, I think, important middle stage, where which is not just like, hey, they flip from being, you know, they they like take off their white hats and put on black hats, but rather that they are, there's this corruption, there's this shifting around um, from the givers of gifts to now the takers of gifts, where they are just laying Middle Earth under tribute, and on the one hand. You know that's not such a bad thing, or at least it could be seen as it's not. Again, it's not like just I'm going to put on I'm going to put on the black hat. I mean, hey, they deserve tribute, right? I mean, they are they are overlords. In fact, they've done all these kinds of favors for these people. Like, what's wrong with uh, with you know taking gifts from them, right? Um, 
even charging them stuff. Like, okay, you know, I mean, so again, you, so I, I think it's, you know, one thing is that you can see this as sort of the more, the more steady decline of Numenor rather than, it's not just that Numenor drops off a cliff. But the other thing, Joe, that I think is so crucial about um, that, that connection that you're making there is that this, this uh, activity uh, of theirs towards Middle-earth, their actions towards the people of Middle-earth are a direct reflection of their actions towards the Valar in the first place. Um, they they used to be giving gifts and now they're taking gifts. Um, well, their attitude towards the land of gift, which was, of course, the gift of the Valar to them. And we looked last time at, at how personal that is and how, how it is emphasized the uh, the individual actions of the the named Valar who are blessing this island and and have designed it for them and are still watching over them. I mean, the ships that bring the tribute back from Middle Earth are still being blessed and and uh, and cared for by Uinen, as we we have heard. There is not a Numenorean ship ever that has still ever yet been lost at sea because of the blessing of the Valar upon them. Um, and it's been two thousand years anyway. Um, so the they have this island as a gift. They've received this gift from the Valar, and they now are claiming this for their own. We looked at this in the debate before. They're looking at their rights and what is owed to them and what they deserve and should have um, instead of what they're receiving and what they've been given. Um, and so this shift uh, in, you know, from giving to taking in towards the people of Middle-earth, I think, seems, seems, seems very fitting uh, going along with that. Laura? Yeah, I just wanted to note that um, <clears throat> the downfall of Numenor seems, in some ways, and I'm, I'm apologies to uh, Jordan for stealing his topic, but it's it's a bit parallel to the downfall of Thingol and um, Feanor in that there seems to be a lot of pride involved. Mm -hmm. As the pride of the Numenorians increase, their um, <clears throat> Their uh, their moral fiber, I suppose you could say, decreases. They start to lose respect for the Valar. They they sort of forget forget um, forget their position. Um, they become overconfident. They start uh, having slaves, and it, you know it seems to me this is all sort of um, a um, a manifestation of that uh, that sin of pride that's coming up with them now and and which seems uh in some ways inevitable with with men they seem to be particularly prone to to having the sin of pride right right yeah not exactly and we can see their pride growing and you know there are times when it seems you know when that when when the text will describe the pride of the of the Numenorians growing in which that doesn't seem to be an entirely bad thing that is i mean you know they are becoming among the great of arda like that is true um but their sense of their own importance, their sense of what is due to them, is is growing with that. And that shift in perspective, um, that shift from seeing where they are in, you know, seeing where they really fit and seeing what they, you know, they really are capable of. It's, uh, um, I think that's a really important shift. Nick? Yeah, I came in a bit late, so somebody uh, may have mentioned this. Did anybody mention, as we're, we're on gifts now, um, the gift of longer lifespan? Before I get into no, this? no, we haven't. But I was, I was really wanting to talk about that. Go ahead. Okay, just a quick thing. Um, in in the letters, uh, I believe it's letter one thirty one. 
Um, let me just check. 131, yeah. Um, Tolkien sums it up and, and says that reward, and he's talking about Numenor here, reward is more dangerous for men than punishment. Um, and he talks about how the re reward of a longer lifespan led to more achievements in wisdom and art, um, which then led to more possessiveness toward those things over time. And now they want more. They want more time for themselves. Um, so given and taken. And they see this in the elves. And it's kind of... It's kind of ironic that it's being waved in their faces, pretty much. They're, they have the ability to go to to Amon, but they're forbid to go. But the elves, who are immortal, keep visiting them and kind of waving it in their face and, and gradually causing this jealousy to, to increase. And then Sauron comes around and just, just uses that to his advantage. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, I, ex exactly. I mean, I think the thing that is, to me, really interesting, is really interesting there, is... I guess the question that I would want to ask, and I don't think that there's an obvious answer to this question or that it's really a, like an answerable question, but what I wonder is, is the gift of long life that is given to the Numenorians by the Valar, is that a mistake? Is that a bad idea? We're told that it's one of the main blessings they're given. They're also given greater stature. I mean, they're taller, stronger, smarter, you know, they're, they are protected, we're told. Like, not only are they protected at sea, but nobody gets sick. Uh, you know, there's, there, there's no disease, there's no infirmity, there's, um, you know, so they're very blessed and they're very, but in addition to this, they're given long life, and especially, of course, as we're told, the line of Elros. Um, and what, I, I, I can't help but wonder if that's possibly a mistake, um, because it leads, it, it, the, that, does seem to feed into now saying like oh well the elves are next door and the elves keep visiting and the elves are immortal and that's just going to make them jealous not necessarily i think um as long as they remember sort of who they are and what they are and remember as the valar were trying to remind them through the messengers that hey you're different you have a different destiny it's not an inferior destiny it's just different um you you know who which of us should envy the other and all of that but by extending their lifespan, they have kind of not just blessed them as they are, but almost made them like inferior elves, right? Oh, now you're going to... Living a long, long, long time on the earth is a really good thing. So we're going to give that to you as a gift and and a reward for your service uh, and your loyalty. Um, but But if you try to extend that, if you try to just keep living even longer, that's very bad and you shouldn't do that. It seems like a bit of a mixed message, I think. Um, okay, I'm going to have to do something kind of awkward here. I can hear in the background here in my house that there's that I, there's some kind of child issue going on upstairs. So I'm going to kind of toss that out and you guys uh, talk amongst yourselves. Uh, if uh, one of you, uh, you know, uh, Laura, if you wanted to kind of... Uh, you know, govern things and call on people here for a second. I'll be right back in like five minutes or less. Sure, that's fine. Um, Chris, go ahead. What did you want to say? Okay, I guess it's kind of interesting because I'd, as I've read this in the past, I've always kind of thought that uh, maybe he, they made the Numenorians um, the same as that what they would have been if they hadn't fallen, and so maybe they would have had that long life you know, back in the, the beginning, and um, if Morgoth hadn't have come around, maybe they would have, maybe it would have, this, this kind of cycle where they give up their lives at the end <coughs> would have been a good thing. But now that they've 
now that they've been given it back to them, it's they don't maybe they and I'm kind of making an assumption there, obviously, but uh, it, they don't know how to handle it over the long run, and then you know, kind of going back to things that Corey was saying just a minute ago, that it doesn't work out so well that it uh, they uh, leads to you know them comparing themselves to the elves and all the other things that follow. Just an idea. I was wondering something similar. Um, if uh, when the uh, when the Numenorians start getting sick again and start losing that long life, is that um, a result of the withdrawal of the grace and things are back to normal, or yeah, is that um, making the Numenorians, um, you know, back to the back to the fallen race? You know, if they hadn't fallen that original um, that original fall, that we don't really know that much about. Um, you know, maybe they maybe they would have been like that, living for for such a long time and never getting sick. So, but it seems like when they uh, when they do start to fall away from the Valar, the Valar sort of withdraw their grace and withdraw that long life and that lack of sickness, and things get to be a little bit more like they are for uh, mortals everywhere, and you know, in Middle Earth and um, you know be, before Numenor. So. Uh, go ahead again, Chris. I think with that, you can also see that, uh, I mean, it's just a normal sort of lessening and uh, the, you know, uh, uh, weakening of someone as they continue on, uh, that people are, you know, you, they are less than as they continue, not just, you know, and clearly, obviously, them trying to become immortal is what leads to the really bad things. But I think you can see that, you know, just like the elves are lesser as they continue, the men are lesser as they continue as well, as if the graces of the back. Well, that was uh, Jordan speaking from uh, from the air, from an airplane. So I think we, I think we may have lost him, but um, the Numenorians they increased at first. I mean, not as much as the natural process. Just something I wanted to throw in there because it mentioned specifically in there. Yeah, I kind of lost that a little bit, Joe. But um, yeah, I mean this this isn't this isn't uh, doesn't seem to be a natural fall from from grace. It's happening pretty quickly, and as the result of something that they've done. So it's not just it's not just like a slow um, decline like we see with the elves. So go ahead, Brandon. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I think one of the other things that we can see is. Um, uh, one of the turning points, as it were, is this, um, it almost portrays the Numenorean kings and how they pass down their kingship to their sons as being um, basically senile when they do it and clutching on to life as long as they can instead of passing on, passing okay. the, scepter, the scepter when, um, instead of passing the scepter when it's supposed to be passed. Um, when they're, you know, intelligent and, you know, in their, basically the prime of their, well, not the prime of their life, but twilight or, a, or a, you know, and this fading and death is kind of accepted and, and, and that, that kind of attitude towards passing down um, of kingship was, you can see that in Lord of the Rings with, I think, Aragorn and, um, and how it goes wrong in Gondor and so on. Yeah, it's interesting to compare Aragorn and um, Atanamir. Uh, Aragorn, uh, you know, when he feels the end of his life coming, he just, he lays down and says, you know, come on, death. And it's a natural process. He's not, it's not like euthanasia where something external is, uh, 
is assisting him or, you know, it, it's a natural process that um, by the, the special grace given to that line of kings that he's able to do that. So, but uh, go ahead, uh, Jason. And this question of whether giving the uh, Numenorians a, a long lifespan was a mistake, I mean, I guess it's tied to the question, what are men supposed to do in Arda? And we know it's not their ultimate destiny, but they're, they're placed there for a time, presumably to accomplish something or experience something. And I guess a question that we ought to think about is, how long does it take for them to do that, you know, to, to accomplish that purpose? Uh, is 100 years long enough? Um, is 500 years too long? Uh, and I'm, I'm just wondering if anybody has any ideas of anywhere that we could point to in Tolkien's writings that, give us, that gives us a clear idea of what the purpose of men is uh, in Arda. Why are they there? And at what point could you look at a man and say, okay, he's done what he's supposed to do here? And that might give us an indication of whether this lifespan issue is something that you know we, sh we should explore farther. Um, I'm back. Thanks, everybody. Um, I, I would say, you know, in response to that, the place I would go to look would be in other moments where we see people dying basically, and how that death is being looked upon. Um, not just Aragorn, whose death I think is important, and I think that that's really good, um, but think of other people who die. Think about Theoden and Theoden's death and the things that are said about that. Um, yeah, Brandon makes a great point. Denethor and his death. Um, and, I mean, I, I, that's that's a really, a really rich contrast, I think. I mean, if you... If, even if you just think about those three for a minute, Aragorn, Denethor, and Theoden, that is. You've got three people dying, three rulers dying, so they're in a kind of a parallel position, um, and all of them dying under different circumstances and in different ways, two of whom seem to be dying well, and one obviously not well. Um, what, conclusion, what conclusions can we draw from that, do you think? What I'm suggesting, of course, is not a direct answer to the question, but a, a, a method by which we could answer it. Um, because the, it's a complicated question that we would have to build an answer carefully to. Um, this is one of the things that I think is really tricky. Um, now I'm getting into like a pedagogical sidebar. Often when people, see, you know, when I get asked questions, you know, talking questions by people, um, it seems like what people are looking for is like a, you know a very clear and definitive answer. Like, is there any place where Tolkien like addressed this question in particular and gave an answer to it? Um, and of course, uh, usually that's not the case. And frankly, even when it is the case, I don't think that his answer is always is always very definitive or very universal. Um, nor am I necessarily convinced that even he believed that same thing throughout the entire course of his life. Um, but this seems to me the only way that we can really answer this question is this this kind of question this whole category of questions um is carefully to be looking at lots of different instances which we can bring together and get you know build inductively this 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 sort of large scale uh picture to do that right takes a long time. I mean, this is exactly uh, why people write papers about this. I mean, actually, I think that would be a really interesting topic for an article, actually. But um, anyway, go ahead. Uh, thoughts about that? Does anyone want to follow my suggestion of the par the perils between those three? Or Dave, you want to... Oh, wait, John, go ahead. Oh, sure, yeah. Well, I mean, something which I would like to cover here. 
I don't know if it's you know exactly tying directly into the question. It was um, an interview I remember from J.R. Tolkien in the um, I believe it was the 60s. It was some BBC recording where he stated that all stories in regards to his mythology were tied to death. That for every man, um, his death was an unjustifiable violation per se, according to you know certain characters. For example, you know for example we can go into like the Denethor in terms of his despair. And I think when he was you know, making these lines, I'm sure he, he was going through other various examples in his head, but I always thought that perhaps um, Numenor always would stand out because the shadow of death overall, and I'm speaking in wide general terms here, but if there's one story where we get the, the shadow of death in clear detail, it's definitely the fall of Numenor because of its association with mankind. I mean, we had you know, the tale of the children of Hurin before, just from you know, a categorical kind of point of view, which was associated with death, considering, of course, it was you know, a very mortal tale. But we had you know, other different point of views there, too, some elf-centric. Here, basically, we have, I think, for the first time, really an example of where mankind has almost a very biblical fall, and yet there is basically this faction, the faithful, where we can basically rely upon for a different kind of point of view here. Going back to your original point regarding, you know, Denethor, Daedon, and especially Aragorn, um, if we're going to come up with like a methodology by which we're able to basically draw, you know, kind of like a fine line between the three, I think it's important to view the, you know, the tone in which the endings are being, you know, described in the actual text. I think Aragorn, he describes how he would not fall from his throne witless and unmanned. Thaden basically states, basically, now I go to the halls of my father, even in whose mighty company I shall not be ashamed. Denethor basically leaps into the flames, crying, basically, um, I, I believe the movie misquotes it, you know, you will not take my son from me. The West has failed. It shall all go up in a great fire and all shall be ended. Ash, ash and smoke blown, upay, uh, blown away upon the wind. So, you know, once again, we have basically a real despair in the West. How the West has not held basically um, you know, an enthroned section over mankind and its uh, faculties. That's where I think the whole issue in regards to the euthanasia earlier comes into play. I promise I will not rant on about that. But, you know, one element of it, I believe, in all of this, comes to the question of basically there is definitely a span which is already dictated by Luvatar for mankind. You know, Luvatar has some kind of an image or idea of what is supposed to be just a regular span in which men are supposed to do what they can do in their lives, basically, to help benefit the world and everything in it and, you know, what they do best. Whereas if you exceed that span, if you go farther, that's where I think you get into, you know, dangerous, uncharted territories of folly, because then it becomes more about yourself. They're clinging on not to help others, not to help Middle Earth, but basically, as you've pointed out, out of pride, to, to owe it to basically their forefathers to themselves and their own vanity. It's, it's a question, I think, of greed rather than of you know, any other principles being previously suggested. <laughs> Sorry, I've written on ramble. No, no, so. no. Uh, no, I agree. I mean, I think that there are a lot of really important things there. And a thing that I would kind of add to what you're saying um, and uh, to respond to some of the things that Dave is furiously typing here in uh, uh, in the text chat is the 
the reason to consider the deaths, the thing that I think is so interesting about those three cases is not just the question of how they die and how they respond to their deaths, but to look at it as a question, as, as instances of demonstrating the fulfillment of their lives. The way that they respond to the coming of death shows that they that they all three of them have very different senses of well i actually i think theoden and and aragorn are not that different actually um but anyway they have different senses of their own purposes and 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 their own lives and what their lives will accomplish should accomplish and have accomplished um and i think it all comes down to it all comes it's 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 not that death is the point that like the whole point of human life is 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 to die or to die well but rather how you die and how you respond to death shows whether or not you have the right attitude to life the world and yourself and everything um at least that seems to be sort of the final test the final uh the final revelation um you know where where the truth of what you really think uh and and what you really believe and how you really act is actually put to the test and so whether people die well or not um doesn't mean that the dying well itself is accomplishing their end but rather that it indicates their own um it indicates their own attitude um i think pretty clearly um theoden on the battlefield um Amir standing over Theoden on the battlefield, Aragorn coming to his death, Aragorn facing death on other in in other places. Um, I I think that it's and then again Denethor and his response to death and how he sees death and the way in which he's showing pride. Again, it's not it's pride is such a is such a big deal and it's so important um, that I think that we can we can get to be a little bit too. Uh, too simplistic in saying, you know, basically in saying, well, it's pride and humility. Well, yes, of course it's pride and humility, but we can see pride operating in different kinds of ways. There are, there are, there are different flavors of it. Um, and I think that there is a very, uh, a very distinct, and I would say also, um, in one sense, very kind of Numenorean flavor, uh, to Denethor's pride, uh, when he, when he decides that it's time for him to die. Um, but Dave, go ahead. Are you there, Dave? <laughs> Mike is wondering whether Dave is suddenly unmanned and witless. Uh... <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> so, when the time came for Dave to back up his text protestations verbally, he has not. Oh, no, his microphone isn't working. Uh, he has a noble. He has a noble out. Okay, uh, Joe, go ahead. All right. Is my mic working? Okay. Someone said it didn't sound right earlier. Yeah, it sounds fine. Okay. All right. Now uh, this is going back to whether uh, giving the gift of extended life was a good decision or a bad decision for the Numenorians, and I don't really feel it was a mistake. Um, uh, I feel like it was almost kind of necessary. Uh, I mean, I feel like it may have came with the territory of the land of gifts. Um, <laughs> getting out of the science of it, I don't know, but. Maybe they would have burned out even sooner without that, um, without the ability to live longer, being that close to the blessed realm. And uh, not really sure about that though. And um, I don't think, I don't think the corruption of man depends upon how long they're on the earth. It just depends upon the person themselves. I mean, uh, I think if you would have given a tar planter 100 years or 500 years, I mean, he still seems like a power-hungry guy. Just 
I don't see that making a huge difference. I mean, getting back to it, I think, uh, and also, I mean, they were, even if they didn't live for the extra four or five hundred years, they still would have been within sight of the Undying Lands. And, uh, I mean, this is a, you know, a what-if game, but, I mean, they could still see it. Who says they still would not have wanted longer life, still getting visit, visits from the elves and things like that. I mean, I just, I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe it would have been different, but it wouldn't have been better, like we hear lots of other times. Um, right. But uh, I, I, just, I, I, don't, I don't see it as a mistake. I mean, yeah, some bad comes of it, just like every, pretty much every other single decision that's made in this entire story. Um, but uh, that's my two cents. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it's necessarily uh, an open and shut thing or an open and shuttable thing. Um, but uh, anyway, Dave, go ahead. Let's see if you're uh, working now. I'm working now. Okay, excellent. Thought you were rid of me, but <laughs> I am no longer voiceless. Um, so I hate to do, I hate to take the conversation backward, especially since I have no idea what Joe is just talking about because I logged out briefly. But um, I just wanted to comment on your answer before, which I actually think that's a pretty good one. I think that's a start of a good answer for addressing the meaning of life in Arda. Um, but I, I, but I, you know, I'm sure you won't blame me if I say I find it somewhat dissatisfying because, because it still points toward death as the meaning of life. You know what I mean? It's no, still, death still, death, I, the I death of an individual as the, te- it as the test of it. Uh, what's that? No, the death of the individual as sort of the, the test or the evidence of their, their attitude towards life and of their own right, sort of acceptance of their role. Not that it's the point, it's still... that it's the, that it's the test. And, and that's exactly but, but the word that, mean. that Aragorn uses. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, of course, of course you're, I mean, of course you're generalizing it beyond you're saying, well, we can use the way that they approach their death as evidence of a life well lived. But nevertheless, I, I guess I, I would find it more satisfying if we found examples of, um, examples that did not involve people either dying or facing death properly to, you know, um, to say to, to, you know, to bolster the argument because it still, it still sort of just strikes me as ultimately it seems like the point of life is to die well, <laughs> you know, and and um, and and the one thing I wanted to to toss out there, which is me um, um, interpreting well beyond the text, is I wonder if I wonder if there is a chance. Well, of course. If people were to sit down and write academic papers papers about this, they will find all kinds of you know people will draw solid conclusions or think they will. But I wonder if anyone, if we tried to really do a systematic, thorough, in-depth examination looking for this answer, I wonder if we will ultimately not be able to find anything terribly good, because I wonder if if the ambiguity and uncertainty that we that we at least you know the people talking here tonight seem to see in the text with regard to the meaning of life in Arda for men um, reflects the uncertainty and ambiguity of the meaning of our own lives. And that as Tolkien was writing this, he saw the tension. You know, as he was writing the Akalabeth, he saw the tension that 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 men um, in Arda have a paradoxical nature where on the one hand. You you don't belong here. This is not your final home. On the other hand, we expect you to um, to live sort of um, uh, in accord with Arda, mm-hmm. and that indeed you are rewarded for doing so. You know, like this is not your home, and you don't belong here. And yet, if you live a proper life, you won't get sick, and you'll live a nice long life. Well, it's not hard to understand why men wouldn't be tempted to think that 
somehow they could achieve everlasting life if they could just grab the right thing, you know what I mean? Because they've been they've already been encouraged in this thinking that proper living uh, rewards you with extended life yes. and health and power and stature and things like that. Yes. And, and there, to me, I really see a tension or a paradox in the nature of men in their lives in Arda, and I wonder if that's irresolvable because ultimately we feel that way about our own lives. We spend most of our time running around having no idea what the point is. Yeah. No, I mean, I, th I, I, I very much agree with that. I mean, I think that that's, um, there is that kind of paradox. And the thing is, is that, and this is what I always find about, about Tolkien's treatment of these issues, is that I don't think he, one could simplify it in either direction. That is, one could say, um, you know, as some medieval philosophers and theologians did, uh, the whole, you know, to use the Latin phrase, the contemptus mundi uh, idea, you know, to have contempt for the world and be like, oh, see, the world is a is a is a passing and shallow thing, and our our destiny is an eternal destiny. Our focus should always be on heaven, and we should reject all things of the world, no matter what they are, because and anything, no matter how good and 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 holy and precious it may seem, is but a distraction from our eternal destiny. So screw everything. Um, that's a, a pretty rough summary of the contemptus mundi idea. But basically, that's 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 one way of dealing with that. To say, okay, this is this is not the point. So just get rid of it all, and any adherence to any of it is bad uh, to any extent. And that's a simplification that Tolkien consistently resists. Uh, the Numenorians are not wrong to say we too love love the world. You know, this is uh, and. And the, the the Valar recognize that and say that that love for Arda was planted in their hearts by Iluvatar, and he does not plant to no purpose. That's a good thing, and there there's a point to it, and and there's you know, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, to just completely turn away from the world, actually to reject the world, is I think very much contrary um, to 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 everything that Tolkien. I mean, I think that that it, there is very little in Tolkien's writing which sounds at all like a contemptus mundi approach. However, at the same time, he is equally insistent on what does seem, Dave, as you say, the uh, the paradoxical idea that uh, we should, in fact prioritize these other things first that is that that you know that we also can't forget that men are in particular are supposed to never forget that their home is elsewhere and that they should not actually get too attached to this and if you do if you switch to the other side like the Numenorians did and elevate the love for the things here above uh above that sort of sense of where you fit in and of what your actual home and what your ultimate home and purpose is then you're missing the point and you are failing um and falling in fact um also i would like to say that uh i am kind of unsurprised that my like 42nd answer to what is the meaning of life uh according to tolkien was unsatisfactory <laughs> that seems to me uh not a shock but anyway um uh this is a this is a these are rather weighty questions we are asking uh tonight and don't think that i cannot see the uh transparent function of these large questions to divert us from making much further progress in the akalabath but anyway go ahead matt yeah i'd just like to address this just basic assumption that that eternal life is an unquestioned desirable thing 
and uh, it's it's a topic that's been addressed a lot in science fiction. And one of the best books that I've read is a book called uh, Boat of a Million Years by the Golden Age sci-fi author Paul Anderson. And it just addresses the the kind of the melancholy of eternal existence and um, struggling to, to live a meaningful life for thousands and thousands of years. And uh, you know, you know, at first you just assume that to live forever would be great, but um, you know, there's 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 a lot there that people don't consider. And one of the best quotes that um, that I can take from Tolkien himself is uh, one that I'll read. I'll I'll let the group uh, identify the speaker and the location of the text. But the quote is, "Nay, time does not tarry ever," he said. But change and growth is not in all things and places alike. For the elves, the world moves, and it moves both very swift and very slow. Swift because they themselves change little, and all else fleets by. It is a grief to them. Slow because they do not count the running years, not for themselves. The passing seasons are but ripples ever repeated in the long, long stream. Yet beneath the sun, all things must wear to an end at last. Very good. So what do you guys think? Does anybody know who said that? Anybody? Yes, I see some people have put Legolas. It was Legolas, and it's on the river journey after they leave uh, Lost Lorien. Right, right. And they're talking about the the strange relationship to time that they had, and Sam's inability to remember that the the fact that they spent the whole month there. Yeah, yeah, good. I don't think we're gonna ultimately answer the meaning of life question here tonight, um, but. Uh, um, I'm not sure whether to continue with it or like crudely shift it off and 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 try to move on to a different part of the Akalabeth. But uh, uh, Lauren, what would you like to talk about there? Um, I mean, not to prolong this really, but I just wanted to. When I think of you know one statement that talks about the meaning of life, I talk about um, what uh, Gandalf tells Frodo. And I'm I'm just going to paraphrase it because I can't remember it exactly, but um, that we can't choose our times, but what's important is what we do with the times we are given. And of course, what he doesn't say is what to actually do. But um, you know, if you just go by his example, um, it you know it's it's basically um, same sort of things that um, that you know that we consider good, thinking about other people, you know, being selfless. Um, you know, trying to do the the best you can and um, fulfill your role in life, you know. So, I mean, I don't think Tolkien had a nice, neat, pat answer to what the meaning of life is. Right. Um, but he did have kind of a moral framework that, that he uh, worked around. Right. And, I mean, and I think that in that, uh, in that 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 famous line that you quote from Gandalf to Frodo, um, the one that Peter Jackson displaced to Moria. Actually, it was funny when I saw that film for the first time. I was delighted because when Gandalf didn't say that to Frodo, at first I was really disappointed because that's such a wonderful uh, and important line. And so when it came around to me quite unexpectedly uh, out of nowhere <laughs> in the minds of Moria, I was glad it hadn't been cut altogether. Um, but uh, but yes, that's and and that I think 
contains, in a sense, the answer to the, if I'm remembering it correctly now, uh, the exact question that Jason asked in the first place, which is, because we were talking about the, the, the prolonging of the Numenorians' lives, and how much time do they really need? You know, how much, how much time do, do, you know, do men need in order to accomplish what they have to do? And the answer is, nobody knows. Uh, nobody knows how long it is going to be, and it's not the same for everybody, because there is not a certain and set task. And that gets back to, I think, the bigger issue, which we have mentioned before, which is humility. And what that means in this regard is submission. The recognition, which Denethor is refusing in his suicide, that authority is not given to him to decide the time and manner of his death, that the span of his life is going to be long enough to accomplish that which it is given to him to accomplish. Um, you know, as Gandalf says, what, what, what matters is what you do with the time that is given to you, not to try to lengthen the time or to, to say, like, I'm going to judge that I'm not being given enough time here and I need more time. Um, well, no, uh, if, again, if Gandalf is right, you will be given the amount of time that you need to do what you are supposed to do. Your job is to do it and to submit to the fact, uh, even if it's not known and even if it's not knowable to you. Uh, and again, and it's that kind of submission that we can see. It's that, that submission um, to, to death that Theoden shows, the submission to death that Aragorn shows, which again doesn't say something about death itself, but about their attitude towards life and their attitude towards their own being and the meaning of their lives um, that they are submitting. Uh, in that way. And it's exactly that kind of submission that the Numenorians then refuse to demonstrate. Um, that they, it, the, 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 the particular flavor of pride that they begin to show is that refusal to submit, to say, we deserve certain things, we have a right to certain things, we're going to keep this thing. And again, and it's like back to the connection that Joe was making before between the, uh, the Isle of, uh, you know, the, the, the land of gift and the gifts that they first gave and then extorted from the men of Middle-earth. Um, their their very life is given to them, their very being is given to them as a gift, and they are holding on to it as if they own it, as if they are claiming authority over it, and again, in a very Denethorian kind of way. Authority is not given to them to decide, um, you know, to make themselves uh, live longer than they're supposed to live, and the fact that they are mortal and that death comes to them shows that they are not, in fact, supposed to live uh, indefinitely, which is what they want. Um, and so I think that we can see, uh, I think that we can see that um, that that lack of submission is one of the primary things that I would say um, is plainly demonstrated in the decline of Numenor, even before Sauron gets there, um, that we can already see the seeds sown for this, um, you know, the references to the tombs and the mummification and everything um, is, is clearly sort of showing that this is, this is the direction that they're going. Um, well, let's, let's, let's move on to the last, the very last phase, the, the, the final kings. Anybody have anything that they would like to say about, uh, about Arpharazan and, uh, or, uh, Tar Palantir, um, and any of those those sort of the final stages before Sauron and the rebellion. Laura, um, I just wanted to comment on uh, Tar Palantir. Uh, you know, he sort of uh, tries to sort of turn things around, um, but he doesn't get a lot of support. 
and uh, the Valar don't really do much for him either. And, uh, you know, it, it just seems like, um, you know, maybe at this point it's it's a little bit too late for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that there's there's just not a simple way out anymore, that the people have changed so much that he's really not able to to stop anything. So, you know, there are these few people at the end, Tarpalantir and um, Muriel, you know, and, and some of the faithful who sort of try to, to get things to come back, but it's just, you know, just things have gone, um, just gone too far, and, and just the, you know, the, they, you know, they've, they've stepped, they've stepped out of their roles. The, uh, you know, and actually the other thing I wanted to ask was, you know, is it the kings that are really leading this, or are the people and the kings sort of going along together, or is it mostly coming from the pride of the kings and sort of infiltrating down to the people? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, Laura. And I think that it's um, it's hard to say exactly. That is, you know, we don't um, we're not. To- I mean, we're, we're told about the kings, and there does seem to be a sense in which the discussion of the kings. Um, or the references to the kings seems to be in some cases uh, Tolkien using a bit of synecdoche, you know, that is the part standing for the whole, um, because we are we we are told that the majority of the Numenorians do go along with the kings and that the kings speak for the rest of them. Um, so you know we have that division within the Numenorian society of the faithful and the kingsmen. Um, but uh which is which I always makes me think about Shakespeare, but um the King's Man was the name of Shakespeare's troop, uh, totally irrelevant, but anyway, um I think that that's I, we are I think that we are supposed to understand them um them going together, but I do think that there is also a sense in which there is a spe- one of the reasons that he keeps using the kings as the sort of at, at the very least as a synecdoche for the people as a whole is the fact that they also bear some kind of extra responsibility here. They are the leaders of their people and they are leading them astray. And I think in this same kind of way, we see this. It actually feels very Old Testament to me. I mean, we see this happening in the historical books in the Old Testament all the time. Whether or not the king remains faithful to the Lord or becomes an idolater, it pretty much determines what happens with the whole nation at that point. Um, and there is this sense in which, you know, as descendants of Elros, as the, you know, those who are being being given this special charge, they are they are the appointed powers of the appointed powers, and uh, you know, they are the ones whose job it is to be leading the people in the right direction, and they're re- they're leading them most of them in the wrong direction. But Laura, back to the point you were making about Tar Palantir. The too little, too late thing, I mean, that's always what I see about it, too. And I think it's it makes him an especially tragic figure, especially we see in his death. He dies all depressed and unhappy because he can see that it's too little, too late. He's Tarpalantir, for crying out loud. He's the farsighted. He knows that this isn't going to work. And he's I, I find him a really, um, a really interesting figure for that reason. He is potentially or almost a heroic figure, right? I mean, he's, he, he could be like in a different story. He might be a heroic figure. He's like the, you know, the one person who rises up to resist the corruption of his society. And, you know, one could, if this story worked out differently, we could see Tarpalantir leads this, uh, you know, revival movement in Numenor and Numenor comes back to the light and, um, you know, and, and he, Tar Palantir, becomes this sort of turning point, which um, 
which, you know, saved his entire society, but not in this story. You know, in this story, he's like almost that. He kind of has the trappings of that. He can see these things clearly. He's trying to, but it, but it's gone too far. And this is where we can see clearly the division between the king and the people, um, because when Tar, when Tar Palantir essentially repents on behalf of Numenor, the rest of Numenor doesn't go along with them. They just change their name from the king's men to something else. Yeah, he and you know maybe he doesn't quite go far enough too. Mm-hmm. So, but Dave is begging me to read something for him since his microphone's not working. So, um, if I could for just a minute, sure. Um, it, it's uh, it's a quote here. Their wise men labored unceasingly to discover, if they might, the secret of recalling life, or at least of the prolonging of men's days. Yet they achieved not only the art of preserving incorrupt the dead flesh of men, and they filled all the land with silent tombs in which the thought of death was enshrined in the darkness. But those that lived turned them more eagerly to pleasure and revelry, desiring ever more goods and more riches. And Day's point is, it just sounds just like modern America. Yeah. Yes, well, there are times in reading the Akalabeth that it's not, uh, that it's kind of hard to avoid thinking that way. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, 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 well, I have nothing to add to that. Jordan, you had wanted to say something too? Yeah, can you hear me now? I can, go ahead. Uh, okay, good. All right. Um, so my question is more uh, back to Tar Palantir. Uh, I mean, it says, you know, like, he repents, and not all the people go with him, but there are some. Uh, why don't the Valar at this moment decide to step in and say, you know what, at least someone's trying to repent. Maybe if we go over and, you know, uh, attempt to say, hey, look, you guys are doing really bad things. You know <laughs> that. Your king knows that. Listen to your king, and we won't destroy you. Uh, maybe this story has a different outcome, but the Valar seem, as they so often to seem, to sit on their hands and just kind of wait for the mess that they've created to play itself out. It's a, it's a great question. Yeah, I'm laughing at what Matt has just typed. You have the Valar saying, don't make us come down there. Um, yeah, that seems to be... See, here's the thing, is that on the one hand, where we often feel like criticizing the Valar for not intervening directly, this also seems to be Iluvatar's M.O. too. Um, we're going to get, at the end of the Akalabeth, the most spectacular distro- you know, uh, uh, intervention on Iluvatar's part uh, that we see since the great music, but, in fact, arguably including the great music. But, um, nevertheless, we... We know that he's been apparently absent. And this is what I always wonder, too, is how idle are the Valar? And to what extent, especially here, especially, you know, when we're dealing with with mortal men, um, we haven't heard, for instance, um, you know, the way in which Olmo kept popping up in, uh, in Beleriand. You know, are there any of those kinds of interventions, which are just like below the threshold of awareness of them that, that like need the Valar come in, you know, war of wrath style and, uh, or, or even, or even, or am going to lead you across the continent to Valinor style, um, and act or speak with them. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, 
we don't get a meanwhile in Valinor section of this story. Um, so we don't really know what the thoughts and policies of the Valar are and why they're doing them. But, uh, Brandon? Yeah, I was just going to uh, add to that, that we do know one policy. It seems that they they send their messengers mm -hmm. rather than themselves. I mean, um, we, so, the, I mean, you can you can kind of side with men's, man's hes hesitation towards believing um, what is told to them directly from the Valar because it's through these messengers. Um, and I just also wanted to bring just another point, I guess, a comment. Um, it seems that man, because they have no control or this kind of uncertainty about death and not, they're not comfortable with uncertainty, that they try to con rather to, to control what they can. Mm -hmm. And that inc that you can see that with Alfarazan. Um, and he tries, you know, he to control all of Middle-earth, goes into the east and builds, you know, amazing things and riches and and to the extent where he wants Sauron to bow to him. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of controlling nature of, of life, well, kind of is maybe is a compensation for their uncertainty of, of death. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But I sound way too like a literary critic, <laughs> or like a that's postmodern uh, intellectual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, is I mean, that, is that postmodern with a capital P or a lowercase p? <laughs> uh, capital. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes, that was postmodern with a capital P. Uh, <laughs> um. Yes, for those of you who weren't there, that is a that is a that is a MythCon quotation. Um, yeah, well, let's let's segue from that on to to Arfarazan and his interactions with Sauron. Um, we're finally now beginning to get close, Brandon, to what you wanted to talk about at the very beginning. Um, uh, real quick, go ahead. Can yeah, we yeah. talk about Arfarazan's ascension to the throne. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, the uh, taking of how closely related are they? Like their first cousins. I mean, first cousin as a wife against her will, and she's the rightful heir to the throne. And no one says like, "Hey, maybe you shouldn't do that." Everyone just seems to be like, "Okay, this is acceptable to us." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, this this is clearly. I mean. Basically, I think that how we are, we how we how we seem to be invited to understand this is basically a fairly extreme version of partisan politics. Um, we know that our Farazan is really popular. That first of all, we know that the Kingsmen, that is the anti-Valinor faction, was the majority. Uh, certainly, was the majority under the old kings. Under Tar Palantir, it's still the majority, uh, and Arfarazan becomes the the champion, especially after his father's death, um, becomes the champion of the now disgruntled anti-king's men faction, uh, still the anti-Valinor faction, um, they want him to take power, just as uh, just as Tar Palantir's dad wanted uh, the younger son, Arpharazan's dad, to take over the, the, the scepter instead of, uh, of, you know, that, like, milk-toast, elf-loving older son that he's been burdened with. Um... So Arpharazan, but but in, in, in at that moment, um, with the ascension of Tar 
of Tar Palantir, they have not yet uh, successfully just overthrown the traditional order of succession. When it comes to Arpharazon, Arpharazon now completes what his grandfather had wanted to do, which is uh, to just almost entirely throw out the order of succession uh, and just take over and just essentially usurp the throne. But he succeeds because he's usurping the throne with the approval of almost everybody in the country. Um, so nobody really seems to care because nobody really liked uh, his poor uh, wife, that is Tarmirio. Um, nobody particularly liked Muriel and her dad anyway, um, so they seem to be glad uh, to be rid of them. L uh, Lara? Um, hi. Yeah, we were just talking about this over in the My Middle Earth chat room, and I'm, you've just said that nobody particularly liked Muriel, but didn't she still have what would be considered the divine right of succession? Did that account for nothing anymore in Numenor? So would that that really mean that Numenor has fallen so low that their rights of succession completely disappeared? Well, again, it depends, I think, on from what perspective you mean that. That is, in the eyes of the people of Numenor, or sort of objectively, when you talk about the sort of a concept of divine right, um, that seems to be still in place. And in that sense, our Pharazon is illegal you know his 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 whole kingship is 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 unlawful from the beginning but of course the unlawfulness of his kingship is going to be the least of his sins by the time he's done um so and even as as our narrator points out uh even just his marrying of his first cousin against her will already a twice compounded uh sin and crime um, is itself a big deal usurpation of the scepter aside so um, so I mean has her right to the to the to the to the scepter gone no she still has a right to it um, you know why is she not discussed as the rightful queen well because what matters here or, or rather what the story is focusing on is where the people of Numenor are. And the people of Numenor are all enthusiastic about our Pharazon, and they clearly don't care about the right of succession. Um, and there does not seem to be a whole lot of sympathy for Tarmiriel. In fact, I th it's, we almost never hear of her again. In fact, the only thing that we do hear of her is, to me, the most the most moving passage, I think, in the entire Akalabeth, the one that always gets to me, um, and what, this one moment that I find in the entire description of the, of the actual downfall and sinking beneath the sea of Numenor, to me the most, the most mythic moment is what happens to, to Mirio. Uh, and last of all, this is on page 279. And last of all, the mounting wave, green and cold and plumed with foam, climbing over the land, took to its bosom Tarmiriel the queen, fairer than silver or ivory or pearls. Too late she strove to ascend the steep ways of the Meneltarma to the holy place, for the, o for the waters overtook her, and her cry was lost in the roaring of the wind. Um, that is just fantastic. And, and that's... I call it mythic because that to me is like one angle from one angle. That's like Numenor in a nutshell. Um, you know, the, the Tarmiriel's uh, and, and even the fact that she is called Tarmiriel, the queen, the narrator is recognizing that she is the rightful ruler of Numenor there. Um, and 
you know, and the fact that we're pausing in the midst of this to say fairer than silver or ivory or pearls, she is more beautiful than any of these physical things, any of these material goods that the Numenorians have come so to value. Um, she is sort of representing the last of the faithful, not the re- not the rebel faithful, uh, like Amandil and Elendil, uh, but the last of the true Numenorian faithful, that is, the last rightful queen uh, whose should have should be wielding the scepter in the place of Elros, uh, you know, the the one to you know, the the rightful heir of the recipient of the gift who is trying to do the right thing, and she is like her dad, uh, you know, repenting and turning back and trying to ascend to the holy place there, you know, while everyone is down in the valley worshiping Melkor in the horrible temple that Sauron builds, and there's Tarmuriel trying to climb up to the abandoned holy place at the heights of the Menel Tarma, and the water overtakes her, and she's too late. Um, too late she has strove to, to she strove to ascend the steep ways, for the waters overtook her, and her cry was lost in the roaring of the wind. Um, it's that's, I, I don't know. I mean, okay, this is what I would point to when, you know, when, uh, when I talk about, uh, as I love to do, you know, what C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien both described as myth when they, when, when both of the two of them, and this is something that I think certainly in the later portions of their lives, these two guys really agreed on and had in common was this sense of what myth is and the importance of, of myth, um, and what myth and what mythopoeia is, um, it's something that I think can be better illustrated than explained, and that I think is a fantastic illustration. But um, anyway, I'm I'm uh, I'm now digressing onto Tarmuriel the Queen. But uh, Joe, all right. Well, I'm going to follow this up with something comparatively weak to that uh, very impressive line. Huh? <clears throat> uh, yeah, just uh, when it mentions that uh, Afarazam was um, the proudest and mightiest. Um, it mentions that there's a four and twenty kings and queens uh, that have ruled Numenor before, and they sleep now in their deep tombs under the mountain and lying upon the beds of gold. Now, I just wonder, I mean, it seems like the beds of gold is making a connection to, uh, or showing how they're hooked to the world, lying on the gold. It's like that's what's important to them other than moving on and uh, going on to what their next duty is. Um, I was wondering, I mean, if that um, just a rep- if that's a representation of that and uh if Elros is included in that, because, I mean, it just seems like the earlier kings weren't concerned with that. I just, I don't know if this is referenced in the text anywhere, but them being buried in that fashion, or uh, I don't remember if there's even tombs then. I mean, uh, I just, I wonder if it really goes back to then and just how far back it goes or how it connects. Yeah, I mean, I, we do learn that this whole reverence of, of uh, this, the focus on tombs and uh, the and what the fixation on tombs seems to show is again like this final and even more futile resistance to submitting to death um okay we can't actually stop death from happening but we're still going to focus on the memory of those that are gone that is or rather we're going to build fantastic tombs so that others will remember us um you know it is the one way that you can try i can't okay we fa- i failed in making myself live forever but 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 dog on it i'm going to make sure the one way i can try to live on is to make everybody remember me so that you know i will build this monument um so that no one will ever forget and I don't think. But uh, Elros and like the first kings didn't do that. Though. Right. I, mean, I don't. At least I don't think they did. 
No, I, I don't think so either, because we're told that that ha- that that's that's already part of the decline when they start doing that, and it's kind of ironic because at the same time, what they what they start doing, what the Numenorians start doing, is valuing. Uh, they start looking backwards and they start thinking about their lineage and their royalty. Um, so they're kind of looking back to Elros uh, and very conscious of their own, the nobility that they get as descendants of Eros and of, uh, you know, and of people of Numenor. Um, and yet, of course, in, in doing this, they are actually falling away from the whole attitude of, of, of Elros and them themselves. Um, uh Good. Well, I mean, there's there's certainly a lot lot more that we can get to say there, but let's get to to Arpharazon and Sauron. Um, uh, back to the point which a couple well, of you had. Sorry, Jordan. One of the things that always one of the things that always strikes me in this uh, chapter is how much it's like the Lord of the Rings, where when they get home and you're like, they were gone a year. Um, it's how much is covered between the first few or the first half of the chapter and then the second half chapter is all our all Farazan's life and it just seems staggering how much detail we get of like the destruction ultimate destruction of Numenor versus almost every other chapter in the book i mean it it spans his entire life and we get tons of information on it yep yep yeah no i mean and that's clearly we get that signal first in the title, right? This is the story. This is the story of Akalabeth, the downfallen. Um, so the emphasis is going to be: this is the story of the fall of Numenor. This is not the story of Numenor. This is the story of the fall of Numenor, and, and that, exactly, we can see that. We get this summary um, of it, and you know, this is actually fulfilling something that, or not fulfilling, but but sort of playing out something that Tolkien points to several times. I mean, he did in the Hobbit, you know, at the beginning of, at the beginning of chapter four, when they're just leaving uh, Rivendell and going off into the Misty Mountains. And uh, the narrator has that line about how, you know, pleasant, happy times are not much to tell about, and you can tell about them very quickly, but the bad things, the scary things, the gruesome things, um, take a lot of telling and make a really good story. And we can see that here too. You know, we, we quietly pass over centuries and centuries of bliss uh, and goodness. And yeah, let's spend more than half of the story talking about like the last, you know, the last handful of catastrophic decades uh, in the life of Numenor. Um, But yeah, that's, that's, that's a, that's a pretty consistent pattern um, that I think that we can see in a bunch of places in Tolkien. But I do think, I, I, I too think that that's interesting. In fact, I hadn't even ever really noticed that until these past couple weeks when I've been planning out uh, these sessions, um, when I first decided what was going to be the stopping point for, uh, um, for my highly uh, plausible and realistic plan to discuss this in two weeks. Um, you know, when I, when I, when I gave the dividing point in the middle, Jordan, it was really only then that I noticed this whole thing. I was like, wait, wait. So the middle is our Farazan. <laughs> like we, the, the beginning of the reign of the final King of Numenor. So like the, all of Numenor gets in the first half and then the last, like, you know, I don't know what, 50 years uh, of Numenor yeah, get, and get the, told. And in the, the first half of Numenor is like, the first half of Numenor is like 2000 years. Or yes. Something. I mean, they were living for 200 years when on like a bad, uh, you know, king who didn't live that long. So, I mean, it's 
thousands and thousands of years that are like, ah, that's like 10 pages. Our Pharisan, he's going to be in king for like 50 years. We need a lot of information. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. That's, and that is very much the focus of this story. And I think that that's, that that's an important cue and that helps us to see. I mean, there are lots of things, many of the things that we would like to ask about or like to think about, about, you know, what was Numenor like? What, you know, I, you know, to wish that we had more about sort of life in Numenor and what it really looked like. Um, but we're reminded by this, that's not what this story is. This is the story of the downfall of Numenor. So uh, so we're much more interested in our Farazan than we are even about Elros, who gets like a paragraph. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, but anyway, I'll, let's let's move on to our Farazan, because of course that's what we want to talk about, obviously. Um, our Farazan challenges Sauron. And a couple of you have commented, you know, Brandon, you were commenting at the beginning on uh, the coolness of that, you know, the, 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 the similarity of the stylistic motif there when Sauron is challenged and uh, we start, um, we, he starts that, that statement there with, uh, with, and Sauron came. Um, let's see, where are we here? Yes, the very bottom of 270. Um, then he sent forth heralds, and he commanded Sauron to come before him and swear to him fealty. And Sauron came. Um, even from his mighty tower of Barad-dûr he came and made no offer of battle. Now, first, what should we be thinking of here? This is a clear parallel. Um, there are a couple parallels here, I think. Um, what should we be remembering? And Morgoth came. And Morgoth came. So, Jordan, tell us, remember the context, remind us of the context of this. Uh, I believe the High King of the Noldor and greatest character in the Silmarillion, Fingolfin, challenged Morgoth to single combat, and Morgoth came. But in this instance, uh, where Morgoth comes with Grand and uh, is, albeit, uh, wounded seven times and had his foot hewn, uh, he comes to fight. Sauron comes to swear fealty and kneel before him. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it is a fantastic send up of that. I mean, on the one hand, this seems at first potentially anyway, like as mad, uh, you know, as 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 desperate uh, an attempt potentially anyway. Again, one we might perhaps think that um, as when fin- Fingolfin challenges Morgoth. Because Fingolfin was greater than Arpharazon, certainly. Um, you know, he was one of the great kings of 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 the Calaquendi, um, one of the mightiest of all of the elves in Arda. Um, and he challenges Morgoth, and Morgoth came, and there's this fight, and he gets, and he gets, as you say, although he fights very valiantly and it's very awesome, stomped. Now here we get the same thing. In fact, the words are even more arrogant. Uh, Fingolfin is calling Morgoth a craven and you know and basically saying you know you're going to prove that you are a complete coward if you don't come out and fight me in single combat our Farazan isn't even challenging him to combat come forth and swear fealty to me um I, i'm not even i'm not even inviting you to battle i'm asking you to come here and kiss my ring right now um and Sauron came uh it's such a it, you know the, the he comes humbly um 
and the echo of Morgoth's coming, you know, his emerging from the earth and the, sort of the, 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 the rumble of his approach as he comes forth. And he, the last time that he steps forth in battle, he's not seen, uh, you know, he's not been seen above ground in centuries. And then here's Morgoth with his huge hammer. And then instead, and Sauron came and kneels before him and gives up. It's just, uh, it's, 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 it's a really uh, amazing uh, and effective parallel. Chris? Okay, there we go. Um, one thing that uh, this reminds me of, I was thinking of that parallel with the with Morgoth as well, um, but it's kind of illustrates for me, me why Sauron is a much better bad guy than Morgoth was. Um, Sauron is much more subtle. He, who knows what he could have done on his own? His armies abandoned him, and he could have probably done a lot of damage on his own. So he says, "Okay, um, I'll come and humble myself," quote unquote, and. Uh, um, and so he, he's got it all planned right, right from the start. He's, you know, okay, take me back to Nomenor. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, kiss your butt for, until I get over there. And then, uh, then party, then game on and I'm going to take over. Yeah. He had it all planned. I just, you just know he did. And, and he's, he's a lot smarter than Morgoth ever was. Yeah. I mean, now we, more subtle. yeah. Now we see Morgoth doing this to some extent, um, when he gets, released from his first period of captivity um and he's you know and he kisses up to manway and it's like oh no i've so totally repented and niana furthers his prayer and he's released um that seems to be sort of the most direct parallel between in the sort of in the strategies of morgoth and sauron um but i agree this is this is this is more extreme morgoth was never challenged like this and then he humbles himself. Morgoth never really humbled himself. He sued for pardon, but he didn't really humble himself. You know, he never uh, smoothed his tongue and actually made out like he was inferior and like he was surrendering in that way. And Soren is so uh, opportunistic. It's like, you know, I don't know how much time he had to think about, okay, I'll just, I'll just do this and... Uh, uh, you get the sense that it was okay. His armies abandoned him. Okay, now what do I do? Oh, this is a great idea. I mean, it's, he's he's always. It seems like he's always thinking two steps ahead of everybody. Mm-hmm. At least at this point in the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. He's he is definitely um, being very strategic, and 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 his his use of of flattery as his weapon and the way in which he works himself uh, into being Arpharazan's counselor. Um, he recognizes the score here right away. But I think there are two things that we can see here is that he not only recognizes that um, he is probably going to get stomped by the Numenorians, but he also realizes that, you know what, look, actually this is even better. This is even better than um, winning. I mean, maybe if I were to take the field and beat the Numenorians, well, then what? Um, this this is actually going to be an even better turnout than winning the battle in the first place. Uh, Dave, hey, the microphone's working. <laughs> there what it do you is. Know? Okay. Um, I I I don't want to take us off track. Too, yeah, I don't want to take us off track too much. But I I won't, did want to ask the question. Um, uh, and I've asked similar questions before about how we're supposed to interpret uh sort of the the change in different parties' level of power um or stature mm-hmm. throughout time. But my my first question is is how, just how powerful is Numenor here? 
because I mean Sauron doesn't even this is and 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 this point if I understand my timelines right matching up the next chapter with this one Sauron's been waging off on and off war against the elves in Middle Earth all along here and yet he's not he's afraid that his his most faithful servants won't stand up to Numenor which means Numenor is more powerful than the elves left in Middle Earth. Yep. And so I wonder just how powerful Numenor really is in the in the in the sort of the grander scheme of things. How do we compare them to other martial forces um, throughout history? Are the elves that much diminished, or is Numenor really that powerful? And I, I have a I, I sort of bring this question up. I'm guessing we'll get to this next week, um, but I have a similar question when we get to the the attempted invasion of Valinor. Mm -hmm. um, like how how much of a threat did Numenor pose to Valinor then? But uh, we can restrict to Sauron now. Like, just how powerful are they, um, um, and how much of this is Sauron just sort of being clever? Because they, because we are told about Sauron later that he prefers to rule by force when given a choice. And so I don't think that submitting himself, um, you know, despite how clever and dangerous he ends up being, I don't think that you know this is sort of his first choice, um, humbling himself before the the kings of Numenor. Yeah. I agree, um, especially since we know he has already been waging war against the Numenorians, the ones that were in Middle-earth. I mean, we know that they have those outposts uh, on the coasts of Middle-earth, and he's already been attacking them um, when he began to rise to power. Um, and now he... The, it's it's just it's off they are so the war is off he admits defeat immediately um and i think that we are supposed to understand that the numenorean army at its peak and this is the numenorean army at its peak as we you know as as we were told earlier on um Numenor had reached the zenith of its bliss a while back and has been in decline but not yet the zenith of its power under our pharazon it is at the the pinnacle of its power. So the the Numenorean army led by Arpharazon is the most powerful Numenorean army ever and it really seems to be so powerful that Sauron and his troops have no hope to defeat it. Um and I I mean I one illust and yes that means that they are way more powerful than the elves who remain in middle earth and i think that part of that is the fading part of that is the fact that there are very few of the calaquendi who are left most of the elves who remain in middle earth are actually nandor like the people who are related to the green elves those who never went over um that's what we see in the lord of the rings for instance i mean both the people of Loth of lothlorien the the galathrim um whom uh goadriel rules uh, excuse me i did i say goadriel i meant Celeborn, of course because we all know he's king uh you know in in lothlorien and it's totally not just completely ruled by goadriel but anyway um uh most of those as well as the elves of of mirkwood are nandor so they're they're kind of lesser elves to start with but to get an illustration, the one illustration that we that I think we we see where we see this most clearly, later on, um, in the Third Age, when the Witch King of Angmar is rising up and he has already succeeded in destroying the North Kingdom of the Dúnedain, um, and he is fighting against uh, Elrond and uh, you know the last the 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 rest you know, the rest of the forces of the Elves and the the remnants up there, you know so you've got all, the 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 Witch King of Angmar and the forces of Angmar have almost succeeded in wiping out the good guys in the north, and then Gondor, 
sends a part of its army under one of its captains um, and under the guys who are actually going to be the last two kings of Gondor. Um, they send they send a relief force up into the north to help to relieve them. And so now this is Gondor at the tail end of the kingship of Gondor. Um, so Gondor is itself already in decline. It is Gondor itself is far weaker than it gets at its pinnacle. And Gondor at its pinnacle is far less uh, powerful than Numenor at its pinnacle. But yet this lesser, small relief column that, that the waning Gondorians send up in the north uh, to the relief of uh, Elrond and Círdan and the rest of the guys who are trying to hold things down against the Witch King is so overwhelming that they just wipe everybody off the map. I mean, they arrive and the cavalry of the uh, the Gondorian cavalry just completely... The Witch King's uh, army is completely annihilated immediately. Um, when the, when the Gond- they just they, they cannot be stood against. And that is like two shades removed uh, from the army of our Farazan. Um, so basically, yes, I think that we are to understand that they are, they are almost impossible to defeat. Now, you know, how does, how does this match up? Um, could the elves of Valinor defeat them? Uh, maybe, but you know, I don't think that that would have been trivial. I mean, we will, as you say, Dave, get to that later on. Um, and I think that there's more there than I mean the 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 relevant line when Arpharazon gets to uh, uh, to Valinor and actually uh, actually lands and a host of the Numenorians encamped in might about Tuna, whence all the Eldar had fled, whence all the Eldar had fled. So all of the Eldar who live in Tuna they've all run away from from the Numenorians. Now I don't think that we're just supposed to see that as um, them being afraid, but um they they definitely are um it there's no way that that would have been an easy fight for the elves is our Farazan actually capable of destroying manway no i don't think so but um but could they have ripped up the elves of the of of the blessed realm yeah yeah i think they could um and Nick is quoting the line from the letter where Tolkien uh, suggests that, that the Numenorians directed by Sauron could have wrought ruin in Valinor itself. Um, yeah, they, they could erect stuff. They are really that powerful. Um, thanks, uh, Nick, for looking up that quotation. That's, that, is, that, is, that is very useful. Uh, Brandon? Yeah, we were talking about Alpharazon? Yeah. Basically, or Sauron? Okay, yeah. Well, there's one re- really interesting thing, uh, I think, how Sauron deceives... People, we were talking about how he just he goes over there and, and how he rises, um, because we're told, and this is another kind of paradoxical thing that um, kind of is demonstrated rather than described in Tolkien. Um, it's that this 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 idea that words have power mm-hmm. and beauty and and meaning and are essentially good things, but then you have languages that. Um, you know that aren't so good, and obviously, um, I guess a person. A, it's like it's almost as if uh, beautiful things aren't necessarily good. Mm-hmm. And I, I think um, I don't know. I think this, you know, because any a lot of other places, people with great voices and and can speak and sing very. Be- I mean, Luthien, for example. Right. Um, are these are good people? These are powerful people. And it's interesting to see the word corrupted um, and kind of, you know, and Saruman does this as well and, 
it's just an interesting thing. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Well, I mean, I certainly agree that beautiful can be deceiving in this way. Um, And there seems to be, you know, there's, when this is jumping ahead to the next section, um, because we'll come back to this, that is to Sauron cloaking himself in a beautiful appearance um, in order to deceive people, because prior to his having deceived the Numenorians here, he has already deceived Celebrimbor and uh, the other elves who forged the rings of power. Um, and I, it, it seems to be, uh, Brandon, when we get there, I think we'll see he's playing upon exactly that kind of assumption on their part, that someone who is, uh, is beautiful in appearance and is skilled and is, uh, and has this kind of power, especially I say this kind of power, the kind of subcreative power that Sauron shows has got to be a good person, right? I mean, this is, that's, that, that's not how evil operates. Um, and I do think, kind of picking up on what several of you were saying, it is one of the things that I think makes Sauron a more, <laughs> more versatile bad guy than Morgoth, because he doesn't just have the whole I'm king of the world thing going on. Um, he also will use... Now, we're told that Morgoth is the master of lies and everything that Sauron knows he learned from Morgoth, but still we see him acting in that way more and more effectively. Um, There's only, as I said, really that one period when Morgoth is actually acting in subterfuge, when he is putting up a false appearance and pretending to be what he's not in order to deceive people into trusting him and then sowing lies. And that's that time when he's in Valinor and he is uh, sowing uh, unrest among the Noldor. But, um, but yeah, that's, uh, um, that's with Sauron, we see that more often and more pivotally. I mean, yes, he contributed to the unrest of the Noldor, um, Morgoth, that is. And, you know, that obviously was, was a big thing, but it was never, I think, sort of ultimately sort of the same part, the same, um, as big a part of the strategy, uh, for Morgoth as it apparently was, or, you know, is for Sauron several times. Dave? I just wanted to add that I don't necessarily see Sauron as being more, um, want to utilize deception, because I think we see in both of them the same preference for domination by power and fear, and that deception is sort of the fallback strategy when they are in positions where power and fear will not serve them. So Morgoth, uses it when he's in Valinor under the eyes of the um, the other Valar. When he gets to Middle-earth, there's no reason in general to resort to, to, to um, subterfuge because he doesn't need to because he is the power in Middle-earth. Right. Although we see his servants using it under his direction quite strategically. You know, he sends um, um, deceivers amongst the first men who arrive in the West to spread rumors, of, you know, lies about it there being no power, darkness in the north, no power in the west, no light in the west. Right. Um, uh, Sauron doesn't have near the power, near the ability to dominate other people um, in Middle-earth early on. He stands no chance against um, Numenor. He doesn't even have the power to defeat the elves who remain in Middle-earth utterly. Um, but, but we clearly see that he prefers, whenever given the op, when given a choice, he would prefer to dominate by power and fear. He just doesn't have the same capability, you know, he just doesn't have the power and ability to dominate folks that way that Morgoth does. Um, and so I actually think, I don't think that Sauron, I don't think he's that different from Morgoth in that sense. I think he just has to resort to subterfuge and deception more frequently because 
he can't dominate people quite as well. Right. And we also have to remember um, with Morgoth, he can no longer take a form that Sauron can take. Uh, once he's burned by the Silmarils, it says that he's, you know, terrible and awful to look at from then on. He can never take that beautiful form uh, to use that. And clearly that is uh, – clearly the idea that, you know, Sauron beautiful is what is what people are like, oh, we should listen to him. I mean it works for the elves and it works on the men. If Morgoth comes out and is haggard and awful and clearly evil looking, I think the idea of him being able to manipulate people would be much more difficult. Right. Yeah, I agree. And you know, something I just thought of, um, which I think is also really interesting. Remember the distinction that's made between Sauron and Morgoth back at the end of the Valaquinta when Sauron is first introduced. Um, this is on page 32. In all the deeds of Melkor the Morgoth upon Arda, in his vast works and in the deceits of his cunning, Sauron had a part and was only less evil than his master, in that for long he served another and not himself. That is, the primary difference between Sauron and Morgoth are two things, both, Dave, as you say, he's like a junior version to start with, so he, 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 he is lesser than Morgoth, and so has does have less ability simply to overpower people. But also, connected with that, is the fact that for long he served another and not himself, and was in that sense less evil, in that he was, to some extent and in some sense, loyal to someone besides himself. In other words, he had for a long time the pattern of submitting himself to the will of another. Now, like, not positively, that wasn't a great thing, but he did have that pattern of submission. And what we see is Sauron basically exploiting that. Um, like, submit? Oh, yeah, I, I'm a good submitter. Like, I, I'm, you know, and he goes and he, like, Morgoth would never do that. Morgoth didn't ever do that. Um, just be like, oh, yes, I'm, like, I'm, he was never a good kisser upper. He begged for pardon, and he claimed that he was that like, oh, I've changed. I am so not evil anymore. But that's not the same thing as as doing what Sauron does to Arpharazon to play upon his pride and to uh, and and to say, oh, I am your humble servant. I am going to I am going to swear fealty to you, and I am going to serve you because you are greater and I am lesser. Morgoth never said you were greater and I am lesser to anybody. Sauron did for a long time. That was his that was that was his job. And so I think that we can see here uh in this tendency of Sauron the way in which he uses this to deceive other people as a kind of an exploitation of that thing, a corruption of that one good thing, that one kind of good thing or at least that one slightly less evil thing about him than of Morgoth and he's turning even that to his uh uh to his to his advantage uh, and his and his evil purposes. Um, yeah, Mike. I agree with that, and I think that well, for me, Tolkien signals that special characteristic of Sauron when he uses the the verb that I love, uh, chimed. Yes. Where Sauron, uh, Sauron's desire and what he's being asked to do chime together, and I found that so terrific that he had kept this great verb in abeyance through this whole book and, you know, it wasn't used to describe Morgoth, but at this instant when uh, Sauron is, you know, becoming subservient to, to achieve his goals, he, he uses that verb. Terrific. I loved it. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great point, too. I mean, it's um, that it chimed with uh, that it chimed with the purposes um, of Sauron. Um, yeah, to this, that is uh, uh 
But our Pharazan was not yet deceived, and it came into his mind that, for the better keeping of Sauron and of his oaths of fealty, he should be brought to Numenor, there to dwell as a hostage for himself and all his servants in Middle-earth. To this Sauron assented as one constrained, yet in his secret thought he received it gladly, for it chimed indeed with his desire. Um, and I think that is really neat, because that that... that that's the way in which I understand chime there is that it's not that it was identical. It, it isn't exactly that he was sitting there saying, please take me to Numenor. Please take me to Numenor. Yes, he's taking me to Numenor. He's not saying that was my plan all along. He's not just saying, ah, you are working right into my clutches. But but what he's saying is, yes, what you, what you are proposing here like resonates exactly with what I am trying to do. And I see in this you know, the perfect opportunity for exactly the kind of thing I was trying to bring about anyhow. Um, so yes, it, it's that, it's that resonance, I think, you know, I just like the way where if you, if you strike one, um, one of the pipes in a chime, the others vibrate, uh, and resonate with it, you know, that that seems to be the kind of image that, uh, that he's using here, um, his own plans and that the way in which, his strategy for the destruction of Numenor is resonating with Arpharazon's own arrogant um, assertions uh, and 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 claims is, I think, really uh, really nifty. Um, well, good. It's uh, it. We are getting towards the end of our time here, um, and uh, I'm of course, needless to say, submitting to the inevitable and. Uh, uh, we'll do one more week on the Akalabath. We'll start off with Sauron in Numenor and see, um, having looked at the decline of Numenor and what was involved in that this week, next week we will look at exactly how does Sauron influence it? What change does Sauron work in Numenor itself? And I think it's going to be useful to be thinking more about the parallels with Morgoth in Valinor and what kind of corruption Morgoth helped to bring about. Um, that's one parallel that I'll be wanting to explore next time as well. That is Morgoth with the Noldor in Valinor and Sauron with the Numenorians in Numenor here. Um, so we'll look at those things. We'll look at the worship of Melkor. We'll look at the human sacrifice and the white tree. Um, we'll talk about Amandil and his journey into the West. We'll talk about the ban and the breaking of the ban, the signs and portents of doom, and then finally the whelming and the aftermath. So, um, that's the plan. Thank you for uh, joining us tonight. Thanks everybody who is uh, listening on the radio and who has been participating in the chat discussion uh, over at My Middle Earth. And uh, we will uh, we will look forward to uh, finishing up the Akalabath next week. And we are going to finish the Akalabath next week. Uh, so thanks everybody and good night. That's it for this episode. Stay tuned for the final episode on the Alcalabath. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.